Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Love Your Neighbor. All right, so one day a scribe came to Jesus with a very important question. He said, Jesus, what is the most important commandment of them all? Right, this guy was a scribe, essentially a lawyer. That means that it was his job to thoroughly know every single one of the hundreds of laws that made up the law of Moses, the law of that day, contained in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, or the Pentateuch. He wanted Jesus' perspective on, out of all those hundreds of laws, which one is the greatest, all right? So let's see how the Lord responded. Jesus said, the most important is this, here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is, go ahead and shout out the next word, one, one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Okay, so what's the most important commandment of all? We've gotta love God with everything that we are. We have to love God with our entire being. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. All right, so love God, love people, and the Lord said that's what's most important. In fact, he goes on to say that those two commandments are so important that all the law and prophets, all that the law has to say and all that the prophets have to say, they're based on those two commandments. And so if, and it's a big if, if we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if, it's a big if, but if we love our neighbor as ourself, then we please God and we engage in a religion or religion that really matters. Okay, so James is now gonna address the topic of religion in the last two verses of chapter one. Okay, so right now if you're looking at James 1, 26, say amen. Okay, here we go. If anyone thinks he is religious, religious, I'm gonna come back and define that term. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, so the word religious in verse 26 has to do with going through the motions of external rites and rituals insincerely. Do you get that? When, when James says, if any of you think you, that you're religious, what he means is going through the outward motions of external religiosity, all the external trappings of a religious system, right? The outward motions, going through those outward motions of external rites and rituals insincerely. Okay, that may be religion, but that is not pure religion. So what's the marks of pure religion? Well, first of all, James says, pure religion is marked by pure speaking. Pure speaking. He says again in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not, here it is, bridle his tongue or control his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious or religion is 
worthless, all right? So in other words, if we go to church on Sunday and we go through all the motions of a religious service, right? But then Monday through Saturday, we gossip about other people. We, we use rude and demeaning words to put people down or we use foul language that hurts rather than helps. Our religiosity, according to James, is worthless. Somebody says, well, pastor, I don't use my tongue. I just tweet it. It's just as wrong. I don't use my tongue, I just use my fingers on social media. It's just as wrong. Our religiosity is worthless, why? Because we fail to bridle our tongue. Do you guys know that Jesus said that we're gonna give an account one day at the day of judgment, we're gonna give an account of every single careless word we've ever said? Wow. By the way, that's Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. On the day of judgment, whether you believe in it or not, you one day are gonna stand before your creator. And, and you, you, one, on that day, you're gonna give an account, I'm gonna give an account of every careless word we've ever said. Now, I don't know about you, but that really makes me wanna be very careful in what I say. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, 34, and I quote, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so if we keep saying sinful words, what does that mean? We have a mouth problem? No, it means we have a heart problem. And so the first step is go to Jesus sincerely in, in humility with repentance and faith, turn to him, let him come in by his spirit and give us a new heart and a new nature, what happens then? He gives us a new heart and now all of a sudden we're talking differently. And if we're Christians, right, what do we gotta do? The principle is the more we allow the Holy Spirit to change our hearts through the sanctification process, the purer our words will be. The word of God is very clear. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful or the building up of others. Pure religion, it's marked by pure speaking, but James also says it's marked by pure giving. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit. Okay, so please everybody say visit. That's important, I'll define it. To visit. Orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, so the word visit in verse 27, it means more than just stopping in and saying hi, right? It's, it's, it's more than just going to the orphanage, walking into the room, there's all the kids. Hey, kids, hey, let's gather up. All right, you ready? We're gonna take a selfie. One, two, three, boom. All right, hold on a minute. Let me Facebook so I can show everybody how spiritual I am. All right, well, I gotta go now. See you later. That's not what the word means at all. The word visit in the original language comes from the word episkopos, which means overseer. Episkopos is um, translated in other verses as bishop, overseer. All right, so to visit orphans and widows means to oversee their welfare to make sure that their needs are taken care of during their affliction. And one way that you and I can oversee the welfare of a, a needy child is to sponsor them financially on a monthly basis. 
And so for years now, we have partnered with and we have um, um, given on a monthly basis, supported financially, GVCM, Global Vision Citadel Ministries. They are doing an amazing job in Haiti, taking care of needy kids, lots of needy kids, along with uh, so many other ministries um, that they have. Uh, the leader of that ministry, Pastor uh, Eve's prophet, his wife Sammy, um, his son Mark, his wife Ruth, and their other son Steve, they're for years faithful members right here in this local church, serving members right here in this local church. And Pastor Eve uh, oversees that ministry uh, down in Haiti and they're doing an amazing job, okay? And so if, if you would like more information on how to sponsor a child, then what you do is you go to gvcm.org and then you can get all the information that you want and you can actually put feet to your faith. Right, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity is not coming into a room, sitting down and hearing a motivational speech on how you can feel good and then walking out unchanged. Christianity is overseeing, taking care of, making sure the needs are met of widows and orphans. And so we have to put feet to our faith. If you ever wanna go on a trip, once this COVID stuff is over with, we're gonna resume our trips, you can talk to Pastor Matt Messiano, who is our care and missions pastor. Another way to oversee the welfare of a needy child is become a foster parent. And so we also uh, partner with and support four kids. They're doing a great job here, right here on the Treasure Coast. And what are they doing? They're providing loving Christian homes for children who are being removed from their troubled homes. And so it's an amazing uh, ministry. It was started by Pastor Doug Sauter, who's the uh, lead pastor of Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And um, it's here in the Treasure Coast. And so maybe it's gotta be a calling, but maybe the Lord is calling you to oversee the welfare of a foster kid, to provide a loving Christian home for a foster child. If that is you, go to fourkids.us and you can learn how to open your home to a child in need. Why? Because we gotta stop playing games. We gotta stop defining our Christianity as church attendance. And we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so pure religion is also marked by, if you're taking notes, pure living. Pure living. And we see that now in verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so, as Christians, we gotta keep ourselves unstained, unspotted from the world. All right, so what does the New Testament mean when it says the world, okay? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean planet Earth. <laughs> That's not what it's talking about. And so when you see the world in various contexts in the New Testament, what it means is unredeemed humanity and their godless philosophy and behavior. So you're reading through the New Testament, you see the world, right? Friendship with the world is enmity towards God, love not the world, do the things in the world, right? So when you see those kind of verses, what does it mean? It's referring to unredeemed humanity and their philosophy and their behavior. 
And so we see this by what our culture promotes. You say, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about not loving people. No, we love everyone. What we're saying is love not the world, love not their philosophy, love not their behavior. And so what, what does that look like, Pastor? You know, you see it every day, I see it every day. It's what our culture promotes through certain political ideologies, through the mainstream media, through the entertainment industry, certain movies, certain music, right? Social media, depending on who you're engaging with on that social media, various books and online magazines, even the curriculum in our schools. Now, I'm not saying that all of what the world promotes is wrong. What I'm saying is much of what the world, our culture promotes, is absolutely wrong. It drives people away from God. Now, listen again to the word of God, 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. So if you love the world and you embrace their philosophy and you engage in their behavior, stop deceiving yourself. The love of God is not in your heart. That's what the New Testament teaches. And so ladies and gentlemen, any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a fish that is alive to swim upstream. And so any dead sinner can of course float down the stream of the culture and just accept the philosophy and accept the behavior and love it and engage in it. But it takes a person, right, who's born again, who's given themselves to Christ, who's received a new nature, who's been made alive, and that person now says, this is not right. I know inside this is not right, and so I'm gonna swim upstream, and I'm not gonna be conformed to this world, but I'm gonna be transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what should Christians do? We should be in the world, but not of the world. You've heard that before, right? And so one of the reasons we're starting Calvary Christian Academy across the street is not to isolate kids from the world, is to prepare them to become world changers. That's why we're doing it. It's to, it's to um, provide for them a Christ-centered environment, Monday through Friday. I always get excited when I think about this, because it's happening soon. We're gonna provide for them a, a Christ-centered environment, Monday through Friday. We're gonna give them an excellent education, along with a strong biblical worldview on their level, whatever grade they're in, and we're gonna give them a strong foundation now so that they can go out and make a difference for Christ later. That's what that's all about. And so, hey, pure religion, it's marked by pure speaking. We gotta bridle our tongue. It's marked by pure giving. We gotta oversee the welfare of orphans and widows and their affliction. And it's marked by pure living. We gotta keep ourselves unstained, unspotted by the world. Now, in the original manuscript, there wasn't a chapter and verse divisions like, like we have to help us navigate through the scriptures. This is a letter. This is an inspired letter. The Holy Spirit inspired James to write a letter to the Christian community, and so he keeps writing, and so we're gonna keep on going. All right, so chapter two, verse one, my brothers. So who's he talking to? Who's he writing to? Christians. My brothers, show no partiality. That's a powerful word right there. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
All right, so the Greek word for partiality there, we'll put it on the screen, there's the transliteration of the Greek, which I will not even start to pronounce. But in the ESV, it's translated partiality. In the NIV, it's translated favoritism. And in the NET, it's translated prejudice. Show no partiality, Christian. Show no favoritism, Christian. Show no prejudice, Christian. All right, so how serious is this issue? Please look down at verse nine. It's very serious. Please look at chapter two, verse nine. It says, but if you show partiality, favoritism, prejudice, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. All right, so the Christian faith has no room for partiality. The Christian faith has no room for favoring one person over another, one class over another, one race over another. The, the, the Christian faith has no room at all for prejudice of any kind. At all. I love what John Phillips says concerning the first century church. No room existed in the church for racial discrimination, class distinction, or economic differences. Period. And so in the first century, ladies and gentlemen, the Roman Empire was filled with partiality and favoritism and prejudice. And it was all based on race, class, and wealth. It's been around for a long, long time. And so the prejudice in the Roman Empire, it led to these huge barriers being erected. Why? Because we're so comfortable in our group and we don't necessarily wanna mix with people who are different from us. It's always been like that. And so in the Roman Empire, what happened is the prejudice led to these barriers being erected, racial barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Class barriers between free citizens and slaves. Economic barriers between rich people and poor people. And James says, no. The, the church has to be different than the culture. Why? Because if the church shows favoritism, if the church shows prejudice, then we obscure the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw that. Perhaps you missed it in verse one. Please look at it again. My brothers, show no partiality, favoritism, prejudice, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, so the Lord of glory. If you have the Ryrie Study Bible, if you look down at the notes at the bottom, Ryrie said the better rendering in the Greek is the Lord, period, the glory. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the glory. That means that Jesus is the glory of God. Concerning Christ, the author of Hebrews writes this. I love verses like this in the New Testament because what they do is they re reveal to us the true Jesus, not the false Jesus of the culture, but the true Jesus. Who's the true Jesus? He's the radiance of the glory of God and he's the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power? Yes, that's our Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In John chapter 14, Philip looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, just show us the Father and it's sufficient. 
Jesus, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus is so disappointed, he's brokenhearted, and he looks at Philip and he says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when you're looking at Jesus, you are looking at God. Why? Because the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. And so yes, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, listen to this, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the power of the Holy Spirit he was born of the Virgin Mary. He became incarnate. He was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the true Jesus. Why? Because he's the radiance of the glory of God. I love that phrase in the Nicene Creed. God from God. And by the way, they had to come up with the Nicene Creed early in church history because of heretics that were believing in another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. God from God. Light from light. Light from light. So I, of course, study a lot. And sometimes I'm in my study for hours. And I'm like, I gotta stop and I need some fresh air. And so I'll walk out of my study and I'll go into the sunlight like a mole coming out of his hole. And it's like, ah, thank you, Lord, for the sunlight, right? And so, hey, just like the sun rays radiate from the sun giving light and life to the world, so the sun ray, the S-O-N ray, radiates from the Father giving light and life to us. That's Jesus. That's Christ. And so why should we never show favoritism? Why should we no, never show prejudice? Because when we do, we obscure the glory of God as revealed in Christ. We get between that, that the sun ray, that S-O-N ray, and we block it because of our hatred, because of our discrimination, because of our prejudice, because of our partiality, because of our favoritism, because of our comfort zone. We, we, we block it from reaching a world that desperately needs Jesus. Jesus gives us an example of this. He gives us an example of this, James does in verses two through four. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, stand over there. Sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions? Can you guys say the word distinctions? 
Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil attempts? I mean, what a vivid illustration of favoritism and of prejudice, right? The usher sees the rich guy coming in the back door. He sees the fine clothing. He sees the bling, right? He's like, wow, look at the way this guy's dressed to kill. Hey, sir, sir, yes, yeah, come on right down here on the front. Hey, is there... Is everything okay? You're comfortable? Can I get you anything? Tea, coffee, water, anything at all? Is it okay? All right, praise the Lord. Enjoy the service. God bless you. He walks to the back, and here here comes a a poor guy. Shabby clothes. What's that smell? Hey, buddy, go stand in the back. Or go sit on the floor. Now, the church that allows that kind of favoritism, what has that church done? James tells us in verse four, have you not then made distinctions? Can you guys say distinctions? Distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? All right, so the word distinction in verse four literally means in the Greek to separate and to discriminate. That's what it means. And so James said to the Christian community, hey, when you act like this, you are discriminating against other people. And so discrimination, right? Favoring one person over another. Favoring one class over another. Favoring one race over another has existed for a very long time, both in America and sadly in the church. When I study the details of black history, I am filled with so many different emotions. I am filled with sadness. I am filled with anger. I am filled with bewilderment. Like, how in the world could this have ever happened? And I am filled with outrage. The discrimination of black people has endured, and yes, I choose my words very carefully. Listen to this. The discrimination of black people has endured through most of American history, and it's appalling. Whether you're talking about the evil of slavery or the failures of reconstruction or the sin of Jim Crow and segregation or the denial of voting rights or the vicious opposition to the civil rights movement or a lack of equal rights or equal opportunity or equal justice, ladies and gentlemen, it is all appalling, it is all disgusting, and what we need to do is get our blinders off and study all of history so that we can feel empathy for our brothers and sisters who are hurting today. As I said a few weeks ago, the church has the answer. Who's the answer? Jesus, can you shout out his name? Jesus, he's the one that changes everything. Not some superficial change. He changes from the inside out. And so for the church to remain silent on the issue of racial discrimination and reconciliation is to be part of the problem and not part of the solution. We have to speak out. There's people that want me to be silent about this issue. I will not be silent about this issue. We have to speak out. Recently I watched an inspiring message by Dr. Tony Evans about this topic. I already promoted his book three weeks ago, Oneness Embraced. I don't know if you got it or if you started reading it. His book is amazing. And then on Thursday morning, I watched this 40-minute sermon. Now, if you just go to YouTube and you type in Oneness Embraced, you'll see, you know, 
different snippets, but you gotta type in that whole, the whole thing there to get the sermon that he preached, 40 minute sermon, to a congregation, oneness embraced, racial reconciliation, the kingdom and justice. I highly recommend the book, I highly recommend the sermon, I highly recommend anything that comes out of this man's ministry. He's trusted, he's thoroughly biblical, he's intensely practical. And can I just challenge you, if, if you really think everything's okay, read the book, watch the message, take off the blinders. Getting back to the illustration of discrimination based on class distinction, James says now in verse five, listen my beloved brothers. Again, he's writing to Christians here. Listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, look at this, to be rich in faith? I love this. Has God not, God not chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you, Christian, have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? James says to the Christians here, why are you treating the poor this way? Don't you understand that God has chosen, chosen, he's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, but the fact that you said, hey buddy, go stand in the back, or hey buddy, just go ahead and sit on the ground, you have dishonored the one that God has chosen. And so you are in opposition with God, you are at odds with God. And why are you so enamored with the rich? This is a problem in our culture today. Why are you so impressed with the rich? Aren't they the ones who oppress you? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the name of God? I told you guys when we started the study, James is straightforward, he does not pull punches. He doesn't really care about what people think about him. He just wants to stop playing games and get to the truth. And so he makes a stark contrast here between the rich and the poor. He reveals that generally speaking, so those two words are really, really important that you understand generally speaking, okay? And so he reveals that generally speaking, the rich lack in faith and the poor are rich in faith. Generally speaking. Now, why are so many poor people rich in faith? This is not a hard question. Because they have to depend on God for everything. Life is hard. They don't know how they're gonna make it from paycheck to paycheck if they're even getting a paycheck. They don't even know how they're gonna get to work. They don't, they don't know how they're gonna make ends meet. And they're in a, a, a impoverished area. And the kids are born into poverty what are the chances, right? And so the poor, why are so many poor people rich in faith? Because they have to depend on God for everything. It's like, Jesus, 
Jesus, help me. Now, you think Jesus is gonna answer that, pre that prayer, yes or no? Yes. And so Jesus helps. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles, Psalm 34, 6. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 113, verse seven. Did you know that when Jesus kicked off his ministry, he went back home uh, to Nazareth and he stood in the synagogue in front of all of his peers, the hometown folk, right? And did you know he kicked off his ministry by quoting Isaiah 61? Jesus. And on that day, by the way, he preached a very controversial message about being open to everyone, and do you know what they did to him? They tried to throw him off a cliff after the sermon. That's what you call a really, really tough time at church. But he said, and I quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He didn't say the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the rich. He didn't say the rich, why? Because most of the rich of that day were threatened by Jesus. Jesus threatened their power, their position, and their wealth. They hated him, they wanted him off the scene. No, 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 Jesus said the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And we know by reading the gospels in the rest of the New Testament that many of the poor came to Jesus. And so why do so many rich people lack in faith? It's not a hard answer here. It's because they don't really have to depend on God for anything. You know, they got all the houses and all the fancy cars and all the wealth. They have all they need, or so they think, <laughs> right? And so Jesus told the parable about the rich guy, right? And his barn is filled with a bumper crop. And then another bumper crop comes in and he's like, what should I do? Did he say, I should take this bumper crop and give it to all the poor people? No, he said, tear down that barn and build bigger barns and I'm gonna bring it all in for myself. And I'm gonna say, hey, sell, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you're a fool because tonight you're gonna give account for your life. I guarantee you that guy went straight to hell and did not go to heaven. Why? An absence of faith. Because if you've truly been changed from the inside out, if God is real and you're not just playing games, then you know that faith is evidenced by works. And you've got to do something. The scholar and author D. Edmund Hebert said, and I quote, church history demonstrates that comparatively more poor people than rich have responded to the gospel. That's a fact. Now, don't misunderstand, right? It's not my saying, neither does the Bible teach that all rich people lack in faith or all rich people aren't going to heaven. That's not at all what we're saying, right? The scripture has examples of rich people that have a lot of faith. Abraham, right? Abraham's called the father of faith. He's very wealthy in the book of Genesis. Job extremely wealthy, and he had a lot of faith. To get through what he went through, he had a lot of faith. He lost it all, and God doubled it at the end of the book. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament, lots of faith. Matthew, the tax collector, once he came to Christ, so much faith. Zacchaeus, that wee little man, that tax collector, very, very rich. He turned to Christ in true repentance and faith, all right? And so 
there's, there's plenty of examples in the Bible of rich people that have plenty of faith. Even so, Jesus said, okay, so if you're with me, say amen. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, and I quote, but woe to you who are rich, you have your consolation. And Jesus said, and I quote, the rich man died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Why? You know the story in Luke 16, because the rich guy who was living in in all this, this just amazing wealth. Didn't have a need in the world. Every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year, when he'd go home, he'd pass by this poor guy at his gate, Lazarus. Remember this? Lazarus is begging for anything. Please, I'll even eat the crumbs off your table. The guy completely ignores him. Why? No faith. Absence of faith. It's never been changed from the inside out. And so Lazarus is so poor, the dogs come and lick his sores. He dies. The angels come. They carry him to paradise. The one who suffered on earth is now rejoicing in heaven. The rich man died. How many of you guys know that we're not just bodies, but we also have souls? And the moment he died in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. I'm tormented in this flame, he cries out for water. Jesus told that story 2,000 years ago. And by the way, people say, I don't believe in hell. Jesus preached more on hell than heaven. He knows what he's talking about. The same guy that he talked about 2,000 years ago is still there today, he's conscious, he's still crying out for water. You guys see how, it, how serious this issue is? He had his comfort in life on earth, but now eternally, he's in torments. Why? Lack of absence of faith. Because true faith, you receive a new nature, you, your heart is changed, and we're gonna see the next time we're in James that faith works. It's evidenced by works. And so what should rich people do? They should humbly turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and then they should live out their faith. Paul told Timothy, the young pastor, I want you to tell the rich people in your church something. Okay, so here's Paul's message, actually it's the Holy Spirit's message, right, through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, the pastor, to the rich people in his church. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Something that a lot of rich people struggle with because they got it all, right? They look down their nose at other people who don't have what they have. No, no, no. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on un the uncertainty of riches, but set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share the storing treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And so here you have rich people in the church that Timothy's pastor of, and they have faith, and they've been born again, and they're sharing. They're being generous, they're giving to the only kingdom that matters, that's the kingdom of God. And now look at verse eight now. 
James writes the Christian community, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. You know, keep up the good work. But if you show partiality, favoritism, prejudice, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. All right, and so the usher um, who told the rich guy, hey, come on up here up front, and he told the poor guy, go stand in the back or sit on the floor, he's not loving his neighbor as himself, right? James is really not hard to understand. This is not deep theology. It's very, very practical. And so he did not love his neighbor as himself, and the Lord is saying, hey, when we show partiality, when we show favoritism, when we show prejudice, when we favor one person, one class, one race over another, we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And somebody says, well, prejudice is just one little sin, right? My grandma was prejudiced, my grandpa, my parents, and yes, pastor, I hate certain people. But it's only one sin. Okay, uh, look at verse 10, please. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in how many points? Has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Somebody says I'll never commit murder. Well do you hate your brother? Do you hate your brother? You see, John says in 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John didn't pull punches either. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But I said that little prayer. <laughs> Good luck with that. Obviously, it didn't take because you've never received a new nature. God has never changed your heart because you're still hating people? Ladies and gentlemen, discrimination is born from hate. And if we hate our brother, we're murderers. But some people think, I'm so spiritual, right, because I keep some of God's laws. Well, he says, if you break one, you've broken them all. It's kinda like if you take a hammer, right, and there's this big glass window, and you just hit it in one little section, it's just one little section, well, what happens? Boom, the whole thing comes down. Break one command of God is like you've broken them all. And so, how many of you guys are really happy for mercy? <laughs> I am. Last two verses, all right? And so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Man, we gotta show mercy and then I love the last four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, and so what is judgment? And I'll be done. What is judgment? I say it every week. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death, that's judgment. So you break one commandment of God, it's like you've broken them all. And when you and I sin, we deserve death, not just physical death, because how many of you know we're not just physical beings, we have a soul that's immortal, it will live forever. And so physical death, we grow old, we wear out, we die, but then the soul goes somewhere. 
And if we die in our sins, the wages of sin is death. Death means separation in terms of the soul, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But you gotta love the second half of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you gotta turn to him. Listen, everybody in the room, everybody watching right now, you gotta turn to him sincerely in repentance and in faith, trusting him alone, asking him to be your savior, the Lord of your life. And what happens? Mercy triumphs over judgment. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. That's what you call amazing grace. And so listen, if God has been so merciful to us, so good to us, shouldn't the kindness of God lead us to repentance? If God has been so good to us, and so merciful to us, shouldn't we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Shouldn't we love our neighbor as ourselves? Shouldn't we put away prejudice and discrimination forever? And shouldn't we show mercy to other people, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Let, let the kindness of God lead you to repentance.